The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This comes from Jacques Barzin's book, From Dawn to Decadence, 1500 to the Present, 500 Years of Western Cultural Life. And if you really only have time to read one book about Western cultural life, I suppose this would be it. It covers uh, the gamut of the last 500 years. But I'm just going to read a few pages here. This is his description, probably the best short description I've seen, of what it was that the uh, French scholars who accompanied Napoleon to Egypt ended up doing. This seems to be one of the great uh, intellectual adventures uh, of all time, and I've been wanting to read this here for some time. This is how it starts. The subject that has been ignored is the expedition of French scholars, scientists, and artists to Egypt in the year 17. 98. It is a forgotten troop indeed, 167 men of high qualifications, plucked from schools, studios, and laboratories, pursuant to the order of the French government and led by General Bonaparte. The original idea was Talleyrand's. The the government, Bonaparte and the savants, as the group was called, by the accompanying army of the Orient, each had a different purpose in mind. The government, the short-lived directory, wanted to hold at a distance the young general whose victories in Italy had made him popular. Bonaparte thought that glory beckoned to him as the founder of an empire in the East. If he won India, England would be weakened and he could be a second Alexander the Great. The path to India was through Egypt. As for the savants, what they wanted was new knowledge and possibly adventure, and they certainly got adventure. Their average age was 25. The oldest, the mathematician Monge, whom Bonaparte had befriended, was twice that age, and he shared with his friend Berthelet, a chemist, the lead in most operations. The youngest of them, not quite 15, was one of a half-dozen students from the Polytechnic School, with as many, again, of its faculty and 33 of its alumni. The rest of them were physicists, chemists, engineers, botanists, zoologists, geologists, physicians, and pharmacologists, architects, painters, poets, musicians, one of them a musicologist, and a master printer on the supporting staff. 
Of those invited, only two scientists and four artists refused, pleading either age or family obligations. Many tried to be taken on, though not one among the 167 or in the army knew where, quote, in the Orient, the group was bound for. Secrecy, until the landing itself, was imperative. Nelson, with the English fleet, was patrolling the Mediterranean at the time. Would the brilliant math mathematician Sophie Germain have been of the group had she been old enough? In principle, no women were to form part of the expedition, but some smuggled themselves in disguised as men, and the troops took on female food servers and nurses. The sailors, as usual, had the help of young boys for odd jobs. The organization was splendidly encyclopedic. Besides an amount of supplies and equipment that could have set up a town, the ships carried the scientific instruments used in each of the mechanical arts and the sciences. Two whole printing presses with Greek, Arabic, and other fonts, materials for writing, drawing, and painting, and 500 works of reference. In May of 1798, Toulon Harbor was a forest of masts. Fifteen ships of the line, a dozen frigates plus brigs, avisos, tartans, in all, 300 vessels to be joined in Corsica by three other convoys to transport 38,000 troops and 10,000 civilians. The army numbered more officers than usual, especially generals. Of the savants, those who were graded as generals included authorities such as Dolmieux, the geologist for whom the Dolomite Mountains were later named, Fourier, physicist and mathematician, Comte, a chemist, Geoffrey Saint-Hilaire, zoologist, Quesnot, astronomer, Larray and Dazegnet, physicians, Lancret, surgeon, Lapère, engineer, Redouté, flower painter, and Villoteau, musician. And I apologize for butchering any of those names or any of the names that are coming up. Um, there were two pairs of brothers and one father and son. No Egyptologist on the outgoing trip, but many returning. That gives you an idea uh, of what Jacques Barzin is doing here. This book is about uh, 900 pages, uh, but it is immensely uh, uh, human. Uh, no Egyptologist on the outgoing trip, many returning. He is as enthused with absolutely everything he is writing about as uh, these scholars were on their trip. Um, this is not dry history in any way. And he says, The repeated painful vicissitudes of the journey were many and beyond full recording. For the savants, the trip meant roughing it. The soldiers resented them and showed their contempt. The generals did not. The armada escaped Nelson and captured Malta without trouble. Bonaparte showed there his ability to rule and reform. He abolished slavery and overhauled the administration, the finances, and the educational system. Landing in Egypt, for now all knew their destination, was another thing altogether. Nelson ventured into the safe haven where the French fleet lay and sank several ships with loss of soldiers and sailors, but not of savants.
From this moment on, the learned corps was repeatedly exposed to pitched battles and violent native revolts. Possibly worse was the torture of the many long treks through the desert in various directions, with fatigue, thirst, sunstroke, sand blindness, and the jibes of the soldiery as the price of scientific findings and amazing discoveries. Not the least of these, for the historian, is that these men, freshly out of their laboratories and studios and classrooms, turned themselves overnight into soldiers on the firing line, builders of fortified places, governors of occupied villages, excavators of ruins, and makers of machinery with unfamiliar materials. The savants' courage was equaled only by their versatility. Conte, a chemist and a painter, invented a new kind of pump, made pencils without graphite, improved the gears of water mills, and found a way to reproduce color drawings, this ten years before lithography, all of it in response to Egyptian predicaments. A man named Necto, a botanist, studied agriculture and habits of the Fellahin, the native peasants. The mathematician Monge worked out the peculiar hydraulics of Moses' fountain. La Père, an army engineer, built a stairway and terrace for the palace that Bonaparte appropriated as his headquarters. Fourier shuttled between differential equations and presiding at trials in an improvised, necessary court. Marcel, an Arabist, became the publisher of the journal issued every ten days, which contained the reports of the learned at intervals, and more frequently, news for the troops. The surgeon, Larray, took anthropological notes on the mixed population, Egyptian, Turk, Armenian, Greek, Jewish, and Bedouin. When mummies were found, he studied embalming, and, on, and the onset of bubonic plague and typhoid, at the onset of bubonic plague and typhoid, the astronomers turned meteorologists to help the physicians predict wind and weather. Science conquers all, and so it went. The official program of the expedition was this. One, to study all of Egypt. Imagine that. That is just one of your orders, to study all of Egypt. Two, to spread enlightened ideas and habits. And three, to furnish the government any information it might require. Duties one and three were abundantly fulfilled, and number two, moderately so, that is, to spread enlightened ideas and habits. The native population was not at all impressed by the machines and the techniques. What they marveled at was that so many foreigners studied Arabic and dashed about deserts for silly reasons. The people of Cairo, the capital numbering 200,000 inhabitants, submitted to having the main streets swept twice a day and the garbage removed. They were shocked by the women's unveiled faces, a little less by having their own appearance sketched in pencil, but they were horrified when color was applied to the portrait, which made it an aid to witchcraft. On their side, the Westerners were delighted by the sights, the mode of life, and the people, 
whom after a few months they came to think of as French. This has been a very un-English characteristic of the French colonists everywhere. In Egypt they tolerated all but the unsanitary practices. They took native mistresses, one general married a Muslim wife and was converted, and they studied the, more, the native mores without condescension. Villoteau, the musician, was at first repelled by the several musics of the different peoples, but he came to enjoy and distinguish their merits and share the emotions they were meant to arouse. In the survey of diseases, the physician Desagnet told his aides to pay close attention to popular medicine. Quote, superstitions may teach us something useful. And except for this last piece of wisdom, the performance and the attitudes of the corps of savants could be called the enlightenment in action. Bonaparte was its prime interpreter. He suggested, organized, criticized, and inspired. He set up at once an institute patterned on the home academies. He was, it will be remembered, a member of its scientific branch. In Egypt, Monge was named its president and Bonaparte its vice president to succeed the president in three months. The members discussed papers written on the spot, on the spot, as data and discoveries were gathered in. When approved, they went past Nelson's watch, together with everybody's letters to family. I mean, who needs Twitter? You're talking about these things on the spot, uh, face to face. Uh, even at his leisure in his palace, Bonaparte made ideas into entertainment. A small company would be divided into two sides to debate prepared questions in philosophy, government, religion, or ethics. To give an adequate idea of what this brain trust, the first and largest of its kind, achieved in only 20 months is impossible in a few pages or yet a book. The description of Egypt which ended up being published upon their return, fills 20 volumes of mega-elephant size, approximately 28 by 54 inches, and 20 volumes at that size. The reason for this format was to make the plates of the Egyptian monuments, one in particular, illustrative in its utmost detail. Egypt itself was mapped in 47 plates. Publication of the, of the description of Egypt, begun after the return to France, was laborious and took a quarter century. The royalties were to benefit the authors, most of whom were by then current standard old men, and not a few of them had died. There had been only a handful of casualties during the expedition, the most damaging being the assassination of General Kleber after he had succeeded Bonaparte as chief. Let's see, on the joint epitaph of the 167, so to speak, one could inscribe the following items. This is what they did. They gathered all the fauna and flora within reach. They found new species, filled gaps in the known ones. Geoffroy Saint-Hilaire was indefatigable searcher in his collection of fishes and mammals and played a decisive part in forming his ideas of evolution and those of Lamarck after him. In chemistry, geology, geography, and mathematics, a number of important advances were made, 
thanks to new facts supplied by the Egyptian environment. To give but one example, Berthollet proved wrong the notion of affinity in chemistry by studying sodium and magnesium carbonates, which are found ready-made in Egypt. And he proposed a better hypothesis. The ancient civilization of Egypt was laid open for further study. At first, the explorers reared on Greco-Roman sites found barbaric, the Sphinx and the pyramids, but the Valley of the Kings, the sarcophagi, the mummies, and one with a papyrus in her hand, the bas-reliefs, the zodiac on the temple ceilings, all won their unreserved admiration. They measured, they made architectural plans, and they inferred history and religion from the vestiges. The unresisting pencil of Vivant Denon drew everything and everybody, alive or dead, and the panels of hieroglyphics besides. And I'm not sure if it's included in this next page, but I wanted to mention it here. There's one story of these scholars going down the Nile, and of course, because I'm in the middle of recording something, I can't remember the name of the temple they come to, but the story says they, they've been traveling for days, and they're not doing very well, and they finally come upon this temple. And uh, it's not just that they're relieved to have found what they were looking for, but the place is so stunning and so huge and so beautiful that these scholars just break out into applause. I've always loved that detail. They just applaud the, their approach to this temple. Um, it says, here we are, uh, when the big block of black granite was found at Rosetta, the Rosetta Stone, where the soldiers were clearing the ground for defensive earthworks, and where that stone had no reason to be, the savant's jubilation was at its height. It bore three texts, one in hieroglyphics, one in demotic, that is demotic Egyptian, Egyptian cursive for common use, and one in Greek. And this uh, block of stone alone promised the decipherment of the Egyptian language. And this was done 20 years later, only 20 years later, by the independent but combined work of two stay-at-homes named Champollion and Thomas Young. In the description volume, the picture of the stone is life-size. In the British Museum, which is where the Rosetta Stone now is, the caption to it reads, Captured by the British Army, 1801, which is literally correct. And then it adds, From the retreating French army in Egypt would fit the facts still better. Egyptian society, government, law, religion, economy, and techne were surveyed as statistically as conditions permitted, a byproduct having been to extend social services and amenities in Cairo and elsewhere. Notably, 19 hospitals and an ambulance service based on the local common carrier, the camel. For themselves, the savants established baths, a theater, and dance hall, and reading rooms, to all of which, no doubt, the elite of Cairo, men only, had access. Bonaparte had insisted that the native notables were his friends and that the populace were his people. Was he not the most devout worshiper of Allah? Another survey, literal this time, what was also undertaken and completed for the purpose of carrying out a very old idea, or rather to recreate an old reality, 
a canal at Suez to link the Red Sea with the Mediterranean. All the topographic measurements were made, and the placement of trenches, locks, and the like indicated and ready for use. Money was lacking and the project slumbered until a French consul in Cairo reawakened it in the next generation, and the canal, and a different plan, was opened finally in the year 1869. Seventy years earlier, the concentration of efforts in all directions was a feat without example. The savants worked like maniacs, not against a deadline, but in part because there was no other object in life, and in part to make the most of a unique opportunity. It was also unique that a large group of intellectuals should be let loose in a country much less advanced in art and science, but with a past highly civilized, quote, monstrous and sublime. Uncommon, too, that such a group of civilians should, without preparation, be plunged into war. And soldiering was not the only ordeal. Both in Egypt and Syria, where Bonaparte made a disastrous side campaign, the French troops committed atrocities on a large scale and appalled the gentler breed of men who had to witness the carnage. Not until film and television brought these things into the living rooms did the like occur, did people other than the army see such things. Well before the description of Egypt appeared, Europe learned about the country from the several books published and illustrated by members of the Corps. Denon's was the first, at once widely translated and in print through 40 editions. Street names in Paris make up a hit-and-miss record of the expedition. Bonaparte was a gainer, too, though his self-portrait as Alexander the Great was a mirage. He abandoned, he abandoned his army of the Orient in Egypt, returning home to dispossess the Directory and make himself first consul, then consul for life, and then emperor. The title of consul was to quiet fears, by suggesting the Roman Republic, and its aura revived a pseudo-classic style in dress and manners. It was not suitable for the imperial regime that ensued. There being no former style to revive, everything Egyptian seemed ideal to fill the gap. It was massive, severe, and adaptable. The lion's foot claws for chair legs and other Egyptian and Near Eastern motifs inspired designers, and the resulting empire style enjoyed a longer vogue than the consular itself. It included the planting of obelisks in cities here and there. And for more lasting effects, one must look to the work of administrative reform that Bonaparte accomplished during the consulate. Clear-cut and efficient centralization, coupled with a masterly code of laws that was widely imitated abroad and inherited by the American state of Louisiana. Now, I hope I haven't read that too fast. It felt like I was flying through that because I was getting enthused with the trip, too. But there we have it, uh, one of the great intellectual adventures of, uh, at least that I know of. Um, and he uh, explains it well. Um, how many times have civilians been sent to a country to basically do what they want and study what they want um, with a blank check, but also to be involved in... Uh, 
the warfare that was going on at the time, etc., etc. Again, this comes from Jacques Barzin's book. Let's see, when was it published? Uh, in the year 2000, called From Dawn to Decadence, 1500 to the Present, 500 Years of Western Cultural Life. And I am pretty sure... Let's see. Yes, he was born in 1907, and this book was published almost 100 years later. Uh, so should we all be doing such things in our 90s? There we go. I enjoyed reading from Jacques Barzin's book so much the other day that I think I'll just fill out this episode with two more bits from that book. And it strikes me that reading something like this, not only is it kind of a response to the, well, that they would be listening to this podcast anyway, but it is a response to those people who would want to not have us learn about Western history or European history anymore because it is so freighted with so many negative things. But also it teaches me that um, that old line from the Bhagavad Gita, it is better to do your own duty, even if badly, than to do another person's duty well. And through the process of writing poetry, of writing stories, of trying to write novels, of trying to do so many things, really, I've sort of figured out what my duty is, I think. And that, in one sense, reading just a few pages from a book like this shows me that I am not an historian. Um, I'm not an encyclopedist, even if sometimes I think that I am. What I am is a miniaturist. What I am, I think, is someone who drowns in everyday life, in the situations of everyday life, the social situations, the responsibilities of everyday life, the simple driving around as I am right now into a parking lot uh, surrounded by uh, a new strip mall and movie theater and Panera and Trader Joe's and all of these things. And what I do is I grasp onto um, even though history is such a huge thing, even though this is a 800-page book, what I realize that I'm actually grasping onto are miniature things, small things, uh, brief images, short stories. The other day, the part of the episode you just listened to, it was the story of intellectuals and scholars going to Egypt. And now it is... Um, the story of the printed book given in about four pages. Now, I could very well, and any listener very well, could just find a book about Gutenberg, and you'd get about 400 pages of that, or 300 pages. Um, and that's all well and good, and you should go ahead and do that. But I realize that I am much better off, and I think this podcast is much better off approaching these huge moments um, in a small way, and I think that's fruitful to realize uh, that is my duty and that is the best way that I can do it. 
And so this is what Jacques Barzin says. Um, anything that can be said about good letters implies the book, the printed book. And to be sure, new ideas and discoveries did spread among the clerisy before its advent, but the diffusion of manuscripts is chancy and slow. Copying by hand is the mother of error, and circulation is limited by cost. And I realize, just reading those uh, first two sentences, that uh, a book like Jacques Barzin is filled with things that might be obvious to us or things that we have heard before, but we have never put them, or at least I have not, I have never heard them put so succinctly and so well. Copying by hand is the mother of error, and circulation is limited by cost. As was noted earlier, print made a revolution out of heresy. That is how uh, Lutheranism uh, spread, how Protestantism spread. None of, the, none of Martin Luther's ideas were terribly original. What was original was how they were able to spread, even as the, uh, the Catholic authorities wanted to quash them out. Uh, speed in the propagation of ideas generates a heightened excitement. Besides, the handwritten scroll or sheaf or codex on vellum or primitive paper makes for awkward reading and for clumsy handling and clumsy storing. Indexing, too, was long absent or unsatisfactory because the medieval mind rejected the alphabetical order because it was, quote, artificial or irrational, since no principle governs the sequence A, B, C, D, and the rest. To the modern lover of books, the product of the press is an object that arouses deep feelings, and looking at Albrecht Durer's charcoal drawings of hands holding a book, one likes to think that the artist felt the same attachment to books that we do. The book, like the bicycle, is somehow a perfect form. With multiple copies of works available and new works rapidly coming out, the incentive to learning to read was increased. The one drawback to print is that the uniform finality of black and white leads the innocent to believe that every word so enshrined in that way is true. And this is um, a problem we still have in the year 2022. Now the print that we believe is true is what we see on our phones or on our computers. <coughs> Excuse me. The lingering effects of... Uh, the COVID cough. And when these truths diverge from book to book, from, for the incentive to write and publish is also increased, the intellectual life is changed. From being more or less a duel, it becomes, again in 2022, as in the 15th century, um, from being more or less a duel, it becomes a free-for-all. The scrimmage makes a blur of ideas now accepted as a constant and fondly believed to be, like the free market, the ideal method for sifting truth. Italy was a pioneer in that transformation also. In Venice at the end of the 15th century, an inventive printer-slash-humanist who called himself Aldus Manutius from Aldo Manuzio or Manucci, founded a house which for a century issued the Greek and Latin classics in the best form, 
an Aldine edition from his name Aldus. An Aldine edition meant excellence, and is now for collectors to hoard. Aldus designs simpler forms and styles of letters, notably the italic, which tradition says was based on Petrarch's own handwriting. The regular font is, again, by apt tradition, called Roman, with, uh, without the capital R. Before these now familiar fonts, printers had imitated in metal, in the metal plates, in the metal, um, the metal plates for the books and for each individual letter, um, had imitated in metal the latest form of the copyist's handwriting, thereby producing the black letter volumes, now even more precious to collectors. There were ligatures between pairs of letters, and special forms of the same letter for use when next to one another. One font is known to have numbered 240 characters. The page was beautiful, but it was not easy to read, especially for the recently illiterate. A modified black letter remained in German books until the mid-20th century. Aldus was not the only great printer designer. Every country could boast several of comparable genius, such as Est the Estienne brothers in France and the Elzevirs in Holland. To them, collectively, we owe several conveniences. Punctuation, accents in the Romance languages, the spacing that makes words, sentences, and paragraphs stand out as units of meaning, with capital letters adding to this clarity. The first call for uniform spelling was also of that time and had the same purpose, so that it's miraculous to think that all of these things uh, did not arrive, uh, they didn't arrive whole, they were part of a process, all the things that we take for granted right now. Another potent publisher, of course, was William Caxton. Starting out in life as a merchant and becoming wealthy, Caxton turned his thoughts to literature and began translating and writing out by hand a popular work. His pen grew weary, as he tells it, and so he learned printing. He set up a press in Cologne, and after two years as a publisher there, returned to England. From then on, unlike his colleagues abroad, he kept translating and publishing works only in the vernacular. First and last, he brought out nearly all the best extant in English, notably Chaucer's Canterbury Tales and Mallory's Mort d'Arthur. Caxton's own prose is not fluent, but his choice of one English dialect and his steady output for a public of lords, gentry, and clerics all contributed to the eventual standardization of the English language. This first generation of international publishers did not merely make and sell books. They were scholars and patrons who translated the classics, nurtured their authors, and wrote original works. Their continual redesigning of letter forms gave rise to the new art of topography. Dozens of fine artists since the year 1500 have created typefaces for every kind of use without making the earliest ones obsolete. Books have a period look to the connoisseur. He can spot the date by the typeface, except that new books are still printed in Caslon, Jensen, 
Garamond, and other fonts, made and named after these early printers. It is only very recently that an ugly, bastard alphabet and numbers, as on printed checks, has been contrived under silent pressure from non-human, quote, readers. As a whole, I assume he means uh, the, the text that uh, computers or uh, that electronics are able to read. As a whole, the early printed book of good quality was a work of art. The page was a composition, whence the name compositor for the typesetter. Margins, space between lines, indents, capital letters, everything was in studied proportion, and the woodcut illustrations were, were by master hands. Excuse me. <coughs> Try to take a drink here. And the woodcut illustrations were by master hands, Hans Holbein, Albrecht Durer, Cranach, among the most prolific. This regard for beauty was not new. It continued the medieval tradition and was in one respect inferior to it because it lacked the illuminated initials. It made up for it by a handsome title page which named and often described the author, for example, Marsilio Ficino, Florentine and celebrated doctor and philosopher, to which was added the rudimentary blurb on caring for the health of students or those who work in letters taking care of their good health. Next came the dedication to a patron, a chief source of the author's income. It was an ingenious device in praising expectantly or uttering gratitude for past gifts. It gained a protector, and, thanks to print, it might indeed bestow, quote, immortal fame. Both parties had an equal chance of profiting from the bargain. And speaking of profit, the late 15th century also saw the faint outline of the thought of copyright. As a physical object, the humanist book differed in several respects from those who now overcrowd the city-dweller shelves. To 16th-century scholars, our usual octavo volume, although another Aldine invention, seemed miniaturized, because theirs was a thick and heavy, heavy folio, measuring 12 by 15 inches or more. Folio means that the large printer sheet of thick rag paper was folded once to provide four pages. These were bound in leather or vellum-covered boards, real boards of wood, held shut by a metal clasp at the midpoint of the vertical. Cloth binding itself is only 175 years old. Often a chain was attached to the book for safekeeping. It might be stolen, strange idea, and as late as the 1750s, one such book, a folio Shakespeare, could be found moored to a lectern in the library at Yale. A notice specified that it was for the student's, quote, diversion from the less frivolous reading of the real classics to be found elsewhere in the room. The use of a book in the modern era was marked by several other innovations. People were now reading silently and alone. You remember that scene in Augustine's Confessions, where he comes upon, I think, Ambrose uh, in, in Italy, 
probably in Rome, I believe, and how strange it is to find, uh, Augustine says how strange it is to find Ambrose reading quietly to himself, but now this is becoming uh, something common. The monk in the gallery of the refectory reading to his brothers at mealtime was becoming a memory. Likewise, the university lecturer, insofar as his title means only reader. Medieval students had not been able to own the expensive hand copies of the learned works and libraries were rarely nearby or open to him. Medieval disputation was a byproduct of that scarcity. And when the press made the pamphlet commonplace in the 17th century, one could now contradict a colleague by rushing their own ideas into print. Printers and booksellers as friends, confidants, and protectors of literary men were often led to publish daring books that would sell because they were scandalous. They suffered for it in various ways, and among them, Etienne Dolette had the distinction of being burnt at the stake along with his works, a martyr of the book. Originally a writer, he was a passionate admirer of Cicero, but not a humane humanist. On the contrary, brutal and unbalanced, he was known to have killed a man in a brawl, like Ben Jonson. Books, books everywhere, like home computers today. Yet a shadow of the old oral habits lingered. It is seen in the humanist's partiality for the dialogue form to argue a case in print. It is an, it is an imitation of the ancients and an echo of the medieval phrase sic et non, pro and con, of oral disputing. The genre seems fair, but shows the author character always winning. The oration, more often printed than delivered, was an equally popular humanist genre, also modeled on the ancient classics, its tone based on the spoken word. From these various aspects of the book, important results may be deduced print brought a greater exactness a greater exactness to the scholarly exchange of ideas all copies of the books are alike a page reference can kill an argument by confounding one's opponent out of his own words a price is paid though for this convenience the book has weakened the memory individual and collective and has divided the house of of intellect into many many small flats of multiplying specialities. In the flood of material within even one field, the scholar is overwhelmed. The time is gone when the classical scholar could be sure that he had, quote, covered the literature of his subject, the sources being finite in number. The, uh, the time has also passed where, where someone like Caxton could say that he brought out nearly all that was best that was best extant in the English language. That would be impossible today as well. That is why the novelist Ian e. Forrester used to call pseudo-scholarship anything not relating to the ancient classics, a rather harsh way to acknowledge the modern predicament. And lastly, in reading classical texts and Renaissance publications, one becomes aware of the ambiguity that has overtaken the word itself, the word book. In the 16th century, for a good while after, works carry titles that state the number of books within. 
For example, Jean Baudin's six books about the Commonwealth, using the word book to mean part or chapter for a short section, reminds us that the parchment scroll or sheaf that was a book could not be very long or thick without being unwieldy, whence several books in one work. And let's finish out this episode with a third bit from Jacques Barzin's book. This is from his section on the witch trials at Salem. What remains to be told is often regarded as one unfortunate blot on the Pilgrim Father's just fame, the witch trials at Salem. There again, the facts are partly misconceived. The witches were not burnt, but hanged. Some were self-confessed. And most important, the belief in witchcraft did not prevail among Puritans alone, much less the New England contingent alone. It gripped the whole West, Catholic and Protestant. Nor was it sheer old-style medieval ignorance. It was tied closely to the new concerns of the scientists. Witchcraft is mentioned in the Bible, but it was not until the end of the 13th century, an age of enlightenment, an earlier age of enlightenment, that it took hold of the best minds by its connection with, with the several magics or mancies, such as geomancy, hydromancy, aromancy, pyromancy, necromancy, and chiromancy. That is, divination by means of earth, water, air, fire, the dead, and the hand. These powers may be used for good or evil, depending on the reason for invoking the, quote, mystery. The choice is like the modern physician's prescribing of a narcotic. When the magic is for carnal lust, it is witchcraft. Exercised for doing evil to others, it is fascination. But even when it performs cures, it abets the devil, and it is still the mystery of iniquity. How this system of ideas was compatible with the rise of science is best shown in the career of Joseph Glanville, we saw how his contemporary, the physician and naturalist Sir Thomas Brown, accepted as fact the existence of witches. They fitted the hierarchical scheme of created beings. Knowledge and reasoning supported the belief. Glanville was an early member of the Royal Society in London and took part in its work with papers on natural history and the mining of lead. But his great contribution was to defend science and the Royal Society itself against its attackers. He argued the utility, the harmlessness, the modernity of science. One gains knowledge, he said, by first admitting ignorance. Causes may remain unknown, but, math but mathematics gives certainty. Glanville was, in effect, a philosopher of science and one of its first historians. In matters of faith, though, he was a broad church Anglican, who favored the use of reason in religion. Ordained at the age of 23, he wrote at the age of 24 a long essay on, quote, the vanity of dogmatizing, which depicts nature as an object of contemplation that heightens admiration of the divine architect. 
Glanville's worldly heroes were Galileo, Gassendi, Harvey, and Descartes. And when the attacks on the Royal Society did not stop, but rather increased, after its favorable history was published by Bishop Spratt, Glanville was urged to further defense. He wrote in one of his works, in which, while explaining, the, explaining deep research, he boasted that more knowledge had been garnered in the recent past than in all the years since Aristotle opened up his shop in Greece. Such was the man who, by reasoning, arrived at the conviction that he must combat skepticism about witches. His early books on the subject bear on the title page his designation as a fellow of the Royal Society, and since all phenomena must be studied, he proposed that, that the society investigate the facts of the spiritual world, of the spirit world. Facts depend on witnesses, and the testimony about, quote, satanic work was abundant. When we recall that Newton worked at alchemy, and the prospect of the world's end, and that others, like John Wilkins, the prolific writer on mechanics, thought that the mission of the Royal Society was to promote the teaching of the Rosicrucians, one can judge just how difficult it was then to achieve a totally naturalistic view of science. That view, indeed, was not only not wanted, but must be resisted, for its triumph would mean that only matter existed, that atheism was the truth, and that Hobbism, as they called Thomas Hobbes' mechanical psychology, was actually correct. In short, the believers in spirits foresaw the state of mind that now dominates and that disquiets not merely the devout, but many free-thinking humanists and some scientists to our own day. In the 17th century conception of spirit or mind versus matter, it was logical, it was logical that witches should figure among real beings. So that the New Englanders, who tried and hanged some of them, 35 in all, could hardly doubt that they had reason and evidence on their side. Some of the adolescent girls actually said that they were witches, and proud of the fact, or glad of being the center of attention. Once started, the notion took on the character of crowd hysteria, and had to run its course like a disease. Isn't that interesting? Even, uh, and we see this happen now, there's a sense um, in the middle of a huge book like this, someone who is talking about reason and uh, how 400 or 300 years ago uh, you couldn't uh, talk about science that also talking about witches and the spirit world and all these things. But he still comes to the point of saying that uh, when you get crowd hysteria of this kind, uh, nothing will stop it other than letting it run its course like a disease, like an illness. At some point, that is actually the answer. And you can see that as being some kind of a, uh, not a solution, but just an observation for the various, um, for the various crowd hysterias that are about these days. Uh, we all want to believe that reason or sitting down and talking with someone and presenting them with the, quote, truth or with the, quote, evidence will 
change their mind on things when that is just not the case. Um, sometimes history is long and the only thing that will disprove certain ideas or cool certain theories or put the quash on just actual uh, insanity going on uh, is just time and we have to wait for it. Um, so once started, the notion took on the character of crowd hysteria and had to run its course like a disease. Later in life, the persecutors saw their error and felt repentance. Too late, like John Winthrop, regretting his different but no less high-minded political persecution. The Puritan legacy as a whole, Jacques Barzin says, the Puritan legacy as a whole is mixed. Toleration of the individual conscience, linked to democratic, democratic right of participation in government, and the demand for social justice. However, these coexist with the hounding of dissenters and the extermination of witches. Mixed again is the welcome to the full enjoyment of life, art, and pleasure of the body, coupled with a strain of asceticism born of a high sense of duty. Of these components, the narrow moralism and the social repression of dissent were to affect the future United States for a long time and more deeply than their opposite. And for a long time indeed, narrow moralism and the social repression of dissent uh, is still with us and that seems to be a disease that we will not get rid of any time soon here in the good old U.S. of A. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.